four solid reasons investors remain far too bullish on 2021 stocks. Plus one not-so-long-shot scenario in which investors might not be bullish enough. I've been watching, half with dread and half with morbid curiosity, the approach of Bitcoin's death cross. Normally, frothy melt-ups and meltdowns like we've recently experienced in the SPAC and cryptocurrency markets are cause for serious concern. Often, these kinds of market actions are associated with the blow-off top of a bull market. Yet, although parts of the market are frothy and many stocks are at near-all-time high valuations, contagion has yet to spread to the broader market in any significant way. Bullish investors are anticipating the next rally to new highs and simultaneously, bearish investors are wondering what's keeping the majority of investors bullish. The simple truth is, although there are many troubling warning signs in the economy, the immediate future still doesn't look worrying enough to make investors switch to risk off. What could change this dynamic? Stick with me to explore four reasons why investors remain far too bullish considering current economic conditions, plus one reason why investors might not be bullish enough. Reason 1, stock prices remain too high. Ultra-low interest rates have given investors very little choice other than to sell bonds and reinvest into stocks. A long-term balance of 60% stocks and 40% fixed income is a very typical ratio of equity to fixed income suggested to investors by their financial advisors. The reason this ratio has been so popular for so many decades is the very low correlation between stocks and government bonds. Considering the correlation between asset classes is important because the lower the correlation coefficient, the greater diversification of the portfolio. In the case of fixed income and equity, the correlation coefficient is slightly negative, meaning if stocks rise in value, bonds often, though not always, fall in value, and vice versa. Having a very low correlation coefficient between asset classes means investors can rebalance out of stocks, as they gain value, and into bonds, as they lose value. Effectively, this simple rebalancing strategy allows investors to simultaneously lock in profits to buy assets that are on sale. When stocks go out of favor and start falling in value, bonds tend to rise in value. Investors can again take advantage of this situation by taking bond profits to buy stocks that are on sale. However, these days, we have a bit of a problem. You see, bonds tend to rise in value as interest rates fall and vice versa. Since the early 1980s, interest rates have steadily declined to near zero. Investors have been pouring out of fixed income and driving up stock valuations because the vast majority of investors don't think interest rates can drop any further. If interest rates can't fall any further, generating any capital gains from bonds would become next to impossible and therefore, asset allocation strategies could suddenly lose their effectiveness as the correlation coefficient between stocks and bonds suddenly start to rise. With P ratios so high and interest rates near zero, there really isn't a great opportunity to deploy cash. If interest rates start to rise, for example, due to inflation pressures, both bonds and stocks are likely to fall in value together. BlackRock, JP Morgan, Morningstar, Research Affiliates, and Vanguard all recently released long-term asset class return forecasts. Over approximately the next decade, BlackRock thinks stocks might average 5% everyone else forecasts even lower returns. 
JP Morgan thinks U.S. bonds might average a measly 2.5% over the next decade or so. Everyone else forecasts much lower returns for fixed income. JP Morgan is so bearish at this point, they are actually hoarding cash rather than investing in bonds. Jamie Dimon is convinced cash is king and would rather be patient and buy bonds in the future when interest rates are, hopefully, significantly higher than they are today. Having both stocks and bonds at near all-time highs and interest rates at rock bottom is not a reason to be bullish. In fact, it makes it very difficult for an asset allocation strategy to operate properly. It seems highly likely stocks will either have to correct or move sideways, perhaps for many years, as money slowly migrates back to fixed income markets before returning to anything close to long-term growth averages. Reason 2, The Law of Diminishing Returns Imagine for a moment you are the owner of a small restaurant. You're making a profit of $5,000 each month but one day you notice at peak hours, many of your customers are waiting a very long time for your waiter to get to their table to take a drink or food order or to deliver food or drinks to the table once it's ready. You realize you could make more profit if you could turn the tables more quickly, so you hire a second waiter. Sure enough, your profits climb to $6,000 a month. Not only that, customers seem to be happier. In fact, you are so pleased with the results, you decide to hire a third waiter. Profits climb to $6,500 a month. Service is smooth and customers are giving great feedback. But you're a perfectionist? You realize there could be even more profit to be gained if service were to increase, so you hire a fourth waiter. Profits drop to $5,500. What happened? Well, now you have so many waiters walking around, there isn't enough work for them to do. In fact, sometimes waiters are just standing by the door, waiting for a new customer to come into the restaurant. Unfortunately, you've injected so many waiters into your restaurant, it's become counterproductive. This is what is happening with the Federal Reserve bailouts. As each economic crisis unfolds, the Federal Reserve is forced to inject more and more cash into the system to maintain liquidity and keep the banking system operating normally. The U.S. savings and loan bailout cost taxpayers $132 billion. According to MIT, the 2008 TARP bailout cost over $700 billion. The 2020-2021 bailout? $6 trillion and counting, not every crisis is exactly the same and not every bailout should be structured the same. However, each time taxpayers are asked to bail out the economy, the cost is clearly getting higher and higher to produce similar economic results. Two problems. What happens if the Federal Reserve is right? Inflation is transitory and in fact, the economy starts to stall again? What could the Federal Reserve do? Inject more cash? Powell has already admitted there is very little the Federal Reserve can do without Congress-led legislation. The law of diminishing returns suggests another economic stall would cost even more than the 2020 bailout. Is this at all realistic? On the other hand, what if the Federal Reserve has already hired the fourth waiter? This is what a growing number of investment professionals like Jamie Diamond are worried about. What if there is already so much liquidity in the system? Inflation isn't transitory? What if there's so much liquidity it becomes counterproductive and simply triggers more and more inflation? 
if the Federal Reserve and Congress don't thread the needle, there could be dire consequences. With too little stimulus, the economy stalls and falls back into recession. With too much stimulus, the economy rockets forward triggering runaway inflation and higher interest rates as a result. Hoping the Federal Reserve can somehow get the calculation just right and keep stock markets rising is not a reason to be bullish. Reason 3, Corporate Debt 2020 was a difficult year for a lot of businesses. Luckily, the Federal Reserve slashed interest rates making borrowing a lot cheaper and backstopped corporate debt to keep the bottom of the junk bond market from falling out. Corporate America is gorging at the debt trough. According to Forbes, borrowing has exploded since 1980 by 2,000% to $10.6 trillion, or approximately 50% of GDP. Perhaps not surprisingly, Corporate debt issuance is at its highest level in history and investment-grade debt only makes up 18% of all outstanding corporate debt, the rest is junk. With interest rates near zero, corporate debt is cheap to finance. With a Federal Reserve guaranteeing liquidity and acting as a buyer of last resort, why wouldn't companies issue new debt to bridge any cash shortfall? The timing couldn't be better to borrow money. Even yours truly is getting in on the action. Just last month I signed a 10-year fixed mortgage in Japan at 0.7%. That's not a typo and you don't need a new glasses prescription. Money right now is almost free. The difference is, I have the cash to pay off the mortgage if interest rates suddenly start to rise. A lot of businesses have burned cash during the pandemic. If interest rates suddenly start to rise in response to inflationary pressures, how many of these companies invested the money wisely enough to pay all the money back? If they can't pay all the money back how many companies will become zombified? How many will be unable to roll over debt and simply go bankrupt? Hoping interest rates stay at zero indefinitely is not a reason to be bullish. In fact, I would argue, the only way interest rates stay at zero is if, like Japan, North America falls into long-term deflation which of course would damage the economy further and put serious downward pressure on stock markets. Reason 4, Consumer Spending During the various pandemic lockdowns, millions of us had absolutely nothing to do and nowhere to go. Suddenly, many of us lucky enough to continue working from home were sitting on piles of unexpected savings. Knowing we were going to be spending a lot more time at home, some of us upgraded the deck so we could enjoy barbecues at home with our immediate family since we couldn't go to a restaurant. Some of us upgraded the home office, knowing we might not be commuting to the office for a long time. Or a bigger TV since we couldn't go to the movie theater. Either way, tens of billions of dollars of bailout money and extra savings found their way into durable goods. In a way, this might be a problem. According to Stephen S. Roach, pent-up demand for durable goods may be largely already spent. In fact, durable goods spending throughout the balance of 2020, far exceeded the lack of durable goods spending in the March and April lockdowns. On the other hand, the services sector is still far behind normal spending. Although economies are finally opening up, Roach says there is likely to be long-term scarring in the services sector, now that the public is aware of the dangers of face-to-face -face interactions with strangers. Roach might be right about the fear of being in public for some people, but that's not the case for everyone. I'm not afraid of being in public theaters or restaurants, 
However, the services industry has a bigger problem. Many of us have invested in better entertainment systems, better kitchen equipment, and better furnishings for our homes. Even though restaurants are open, I find myself eating at restaurants only a fraction of the times I used to pre-pandemic. I have an electric roaster, a new kitchen, and a bunch of new cooking techniques I learned on YouTube. After learning how to poach eggs and make a decent French omelette, I haven't been out for breakfast on the weekend in months. I love roasting meat and vegetables on the weekend, using my new cooking thermometer to cook food to perfection at a fraction of what I pay at the restaurant. But that's not the worst news, the durable goods sector likely has a long-term problem too. Now that we've upgraded our TVs, invested in kitchen equipment, upgraded the deck, purchased new furniture, and signed up for Netflix, where will the growth in durable goods come from? In fact, so much was purchased with stimulus checks during the pandemic, it is completely possible the explosive growth numbers we've seen in streaming services and online retail platforms, may have already experienced their best growth for many years. One not-so-long-shot scenario. Now, at the beginning of this article, I promised one serious contrarian scenario that could possibly lead not to a crash in the markets, but rather a long-term extension of the current bull market. That contrarian scenario is the Federal Reserve starts buying stocks. I know, it's a long shot, but hear me out. Last spring, no one thought the Federal Reserve would backstop junk debt by buying junk bond ETFs. Even the best minds in the business were dead wrong. Many thought it would lead to disaster. So far, it hasn't. However, Acting as the buyer of last resort for distressed junk bonds is miles away from directly buying stock in the open market, right? So, you might be wondering why I think this is even a possibility? The answer is simple, the Federal Reserve has been following the Bank of Japan's playbook throughout the entire pandemic. The Baj has bought Nikkei ETFs for years. May 2021 was the first time since 2012 the Baj didn't buy ETFs. Between the Baj and the Government Pension Investment Fund, the Japanese government owns around 15% of the total market capitalization. As unplausible as it seems at first glance, I think it would be foolish to discount the possibility the Federal Reserve jumps in chest deep and starts buying stock ETFs to keep this stock market booming. Disclosure, I have no positions in any of the stocks referenced in this article. Please seek professional advice before making any investment decisions.